Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The human being approaches every situation with the satanic question, what's in it for me? From there, we establish goals, define measurements, and declare success when we hit our numbers. This works great in the boardroom but hasn't helped much with school shootings and truly has no place in the kingdom of the heavens. In the parable of the talents, the master's investment is measured not in mammon, but as wisdom. In this sense, it can't be counted like a membership role or photographed like a tomb of stone. Sorry, did I say tomb? I meant building project. Whether you have one person or 1,000 in church on Sunday, there is only one judge who can assess whether or not his investment has paid off and it has nothing to do with numbers or stones. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 28 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 388 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Just a couple episodes ago, Richard, we were talking about how the Master in the parable of the talents characterized the amount given to each of the slaves. And when he was crediting the one who received, for example, the five talents and the one who received the two talents, he said to each of them, well done, good and faithful slave, you were faithful in a few things, oligos, a few things, I will set you over many things. And that terminology stood out at the time because having heard this parable over and over again and knowing the end of the mashal, we know that Jesus will say, as we'll hear today, that to those who have been given, more will be added. Being aware of that phraseology and seeing the disparity between five, two, and one and understanding that there's a big difference between five and one, there's this underlying assumption that almost seems the intention of the author, that there's a disparity between the guy who got five initially and the guy who got one, an implied disparity, an implied, dare I say, unfairness about the situation. Because if you start with more to invest, it's easier to make more. So I want to explore that a bit. What's going on? Why would he make the point 
of saying to the five and the two, you did well with very little, and then pound on the guy who got the least for doing nothing. I think we explored why he pounded on the guy who got the least and dispensed with the pity party for the victim, which is typical of popular psychology in this culture, right? Because we want to have pity for ourselves. That's why we want to pity this guy. That's the trap that we can't fall into. This is literature. If you're pitying a character in the story, don't kid yourself. The real pity you have is for yourself. And that's why we can show no pity for this character. If we were dealing with an actual homeless man, it'd be a different discussion. We're dealing with a character into whom you are projecting your ego and then asking why are you being so hard on him? <laughs> Come on, people. Just be honest with yourself. It's the path to wisdom and enlightenment. Come on. The trust in them came from the fact that they doubled whatever they had. They did the work. They did what was expected of them. And then he said, all right, I can trust in you. You're trustworthy. But this one slave is not trustworthy because he didn't do it. And this is the funny thing. If he had taken his one talent invested and gotten one talent back, based on the logic of the last two slaves, the Kyrios would have said, you're going to be a master over many things because he brought him one extra talent. When he's got a guy who can turn 10 talents into 20 if he needed to. But the guy who could take one and turn it into two, he also can be a master over many things if he just does the work. And this parable then from that framework reminds me of the widow's might, where it wasn't about how much she had, it was about how faithful she was with what she had. And this is really important for a parish. I mean, we just had a parish council meeting last night, and I thought it went really well. And what I like about it is that people don't get praised because they're so talented at a parish council meeting. Not at St. Elizabeth. <laughs> they don't get praised <laughs> for anything at St. Elizabeth. But There are no thank yous and no applause at St. Elizabeth. But the gratitude comes from things moving forward for the electrical system to get fixed and for a neighborhood event to get organized and to make sure that we're being friends with the neighbors and that our church looks decent. And as long as we're moving ahead with that, that's faithfulness. That's faithfulness to the community. It really doesn't matter how good you are at what you're doing at St. Elizabeth or wherever the Lord has placed you. It's to take whatever has been given to you and invest it at the table fellowship. That's it. Invest it in the fellowship, in the society that you have. Otherwise, you're squandering it, and people are losing out for their opportunities. I am always pressured when I'm at St. Elizabeth because I see a community of people up and down our street whom I don't know who I'm not working to bring into the table fellowship. Not that I'm trying to convert them, but I want them to know that they are a part of our table, and I'm hoping that we can be a part of their table. But for me, it's one table under the gospel, 
And as a slave who hopes to be a faithful slave and not a wicked and slothful phase, I can't be afraid that the Lord is going to judge me. Oh no, what should I do? If I'm afraid of what the Lord might do to me, oh no, what should I do? I better go knock on doors and make sure that everyone knows who I am and knows who St. Elizabeth is and is welcomed to our table. I think it's interesting, actually, your point about the widow's might from the Gospel of Mark. I think also that the devaluing, in a way, of the amount says something about what is actually valued here. Remember that the parodosis is not really about money. Remember that the table, trapezitis, is not really about a banker's table or a bank. Remember that the talanton is not about a measure of money. It's about the weight of the burden of responsibility of the ordinances of God, the parodosis, that which is deposited. We're talking about the work of preaching and placing our trust in what is deposited. You mentioned trustworthiness just a minute ago, Rich. If we understand the parable to be about that work, then it's really not about growth or numbers then what we are entrusted with is the responsibility of wisdom. If you work the teaching, you receive more from the teaching, and it's really not about growth in a measurable sense that is passing away. This is really important to understand. So God does expect a return on his investment but just as in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus was always telling the disciples to keep their mouth shut because they didn't understand what he was talking about because the only way they could talk about his kingdom was in the terms that Caesar talks about kingdom and power. So he told them, don't tell anybody who I am because you don't understand what it means that I'm the king. You don't get it, so just keep your mouth shut. You're not allowed to talk about it until after they kill me, because then you're stuck with the cross. So even if you don't understand it, because I will have been crucified, you'll have no choice but to say, this guy who was crucified, who's not around anymore, he's our king. And it won't matter that you can't explain it because Caesar will still be on the throne and I'll be gone and you'll look like a fool and then we can get down to business. It's the same thing here. I mean, look at how people misuse this parable no matter what. They still think it's about money and stewardship and the growth of the parish and getting people engaged and growing as a community and building up the church in material terms. And right there in the parable, all of that is undermined because 5, 2, 1, 10, 20, it's, you know, it's piddly stuff. I'm going to entrust you with something serious. If you can demonstrate faithfulness in something small. So now we come back up on his frustration with the coward who thinks that he can separate what he owns. I mean, a slave, Richard, 
who thinks he can separate what he owns from what the master owns. Silly. Remember, last week, the slave who buried the one talent wanted to give back to the master what he thought was his. I mean, come on. You can't do that. It's like a kid who lives in a bedroom in your house saying, here, take back the sheets, but the bed belongs to me. Really? I bought it all. Tell me which part of your bedroom you're going to give back so that we're even. So how does God respond in verse 28 to the wicked slave? Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. This is exactly what we've been saying all along, that a wise manager, a wise master in a Roman household, or the ekonomos under the master of the household, under the Lord, the kyrios of the house, the wise master says, I'm going to assign more work to the one who was the most productive with the most responsibility. I'm going to give the guy a promotion, obviously, because my goal is to be as productive as possible. Now, this is where people get all up in arms because of contemporary social theory about the Protestant work ethic and capitalism. And and then you have people who say, well, that's why we in the East, we are lazy. We're not like the Protestants who all they care about is work. All of that is just noise. You're both wrong. You do have to work. That is true. But the work you have to do has nothing to do with capitalism and profit. That's where both sides are wrong. It's not about being productive at work. Who cares about work? You work to make money, and your money goes to the grave with you. You can't take it with you anywhere. You're passing away. We are talking about being productive as it pertains to the things that do not die the things that you can't count and measure the way you count and measure your money at the bank. That's why the table does pertain to the table fellowship preached in Paul's gospel. It can't not but, Richard. Taking away this talent and giving it to the one who has 10, again, I want to attack this standard way of understanding this it sounds like a punishment to the slothful and wicked servant which i think is correct but then we start to feel like it's a reward to this slave who has 10 but we know what the kyrios thinks when he hands a talent over to one of his slaves uh, there's more work to do now he doesn't say, here's five talents for your work. Thanks a lot for the great labor you've put into this. No, he says, here's five. Go invest it. Go do your work and make more for me. The Kyrios does not give talents to people as a reward. He gives talents to people to work. So I feel a little bit sorry, actually, for this great 
faithful servant who now has more work to do. A priest may not always rejoice when new congregants walk through the front door because that means more work. That means more pastoral care. That means more communications. That means getting those people into the system and making sure that they're participating in the community. It means more home visits. It means more house blessings. The Lord does not give. He invests. The paradosis is not to have and sit on and enjoy. We learned that from the third servant, right? The Kyrios only invests. And your faithfulness is weighed by what you do with that investment. You have to be faithful. The reward is he still trusts you. The punishment is he no longer trusts you. We have an obligation, and I said this so many times last week, we have an obligation to work, to perform the duty, to do the thing that's placed in front of us. Might we stumble? Might we do a bad job? Maybe. But we don't hear anything about this. Maybe the one who made two, maybe he could have made five. We don't know. And in fact, the Kyrios seems not to care. The Kyrios only cared that he was faithful. It doesn't matter if you don't like knocking on doors. It doesn't matter if you have a bad personality and nobody wants to come sit at the table with you. It doesn't matter. Nobody asked Ezekiel what kind of a guy he was. He was just a priest, and the Lord said, I need a watchman, and I chose you. Was it because he was such a good guy? I mean, Noah was chosen to perpetuate the human race, but it wasn't because he was such a great guy. We don't know why. He just chose him. You should have gone to the table fellowship and invested what you can. It doesn't matter if you're lousy. It doesn't matter if you're not good. It doesn't matter if you don't know what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you might lose points. You have to put some kind of answer down like I was talking about last week. You have to do the work, perhaps to fail, but to at least try. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. And we are not talking about money. We are not talking about the size of your parish. We are not talking about worldly success. We are not talking about the success of your political party or your nation. God is not going to prosper you materially. We're not talking about any of that nonsense. We're talking about wisdom. Let me copy the prophet Jeremiah, the teenager who is wiser than all of us because he allowed God to speak for him not because he was wise. We are talking about wisdom. We are talking about wisdom. We are talking about wisdom. That is why in the liturgy, the deacon exclaims, wisdom, let us pay attention. The wisdom is about to be announced to the assembly. It is 
wisdom that is being preached. It is wisdom that we are sowing. It is wisdom that we are pursuing. It is wisdom that we are sharing. It is wisdom that we are investing. It is wisdom that we are committed to. It is wisdom that gives life. How many times do I have to say the word wisdom? I'm an Orthodox priest. I say it every single week. Wisdom. We are talking about God's wisdom. Nothing else matters. Obviously, if a little bit of wisdom is deposited and you work on trying to understand what that wisdom means and you try to live that wisdom, that wisdom will grow and more wisdom will be added. And the more you search that wisdom, it will search you. Remember what Father Paul taught us in Hebrew class about the verb darash. You think you are searching Scripture. You think you are searching God. But it is God who is searching you. That is what Paul means when he plays on the idea of God who's seeing him in the marketplace. Paul, the rabbinic scholar, the Jew of Jews, so to speak, the rabbi of rabbis, who was more zealous for the traditions of his fathers and who was a persecutor of the church, was searching the Torah, but it was the Torah that searched him and found him and adopted him as a slave in God's Roman household, even though he was a Jew. It's really something, friends. You really have to hear Scripture. We are talking about God's wisdom. That is the investment. That is the deposit. That is the thing that grows and is added in abundance. Once you get that through your thick Anglo-Saxon cranium and stop talking to me about the growth of your parish, that's all we're saying. It's about the growth of wisdom then you realize it doesn't matter if there's only two people in church on Sunday because you're not trying to grow the number of people. You're trying to grow God's wisdom in yourself and in whoever is interested standing nearby. Please hear what we're saying. That is the abundance that the master in the mashal is talking about. And the flip side, of course, is that the one who does not have this wisdom, even what he thinks he has, is going to be taken away from him. Use it or lose it. Isn't that what they say? It's true for Darwin, and it's true for wisdom. If you are not practicing the gospel, the gospel will be gone. The investment that the Kyrios made in allowing you to access his gospel when you do not put into practice his gospel you lose the very wisdom 
that you had that you didn't even know you had. This excuse that this third slave made, I know you're hard, and so I didn't try, shows that the investment was truly wasted on a slave who was wicked and lazy. And the work and the effort and the deposit that was handed to you is ultimately a waste. And here, at least the Kyrios didn't lose out on the talent that he handed over, but he did lose out on whatever dividends he could have made. But now he knows that the one who has much can make even more. But the one who can't make anything more, he's a sunk cost. And we're just going to have to deal with that loss. This Kyrios is a good businessman in the end. He knows where a good investment lies. He just has a different business goal than everybody else. That's maybe the best way to explain it to the people who live in this country who are impressed with iPhones and who really think that if they could just convince God to carry an iPhone, everything would be fine or an Android, depending on your religion. Because don't kid yourself. Americans have religions. It's just like they have nothing to do with wisdom. They have to do with the dollar. This is how we know God is an agnostic. (laughs) Exactly. So how does God deal with the person who didn't crack open the Bible after he handed him a copy in his baptism. Throw out that worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here, let me play the game and help you understand how this works. That's so mean of God. Well, you know, again, How can you describe the logical outcome of a foolish behavior as cruel? I know how you can do that because you're a Hellenist. Everything for you has personality and intent. But for me, one plus one equals two. You can't be upset that one plus one equals two. We just said a minute ago, use it or lose it. What do you want God to do for you? He couldn't let you into the wedding feast because you did not act or talk like a member of his wedding party. He didn't recognize you. How could he let you in? It's not because he didn't like you. It's because he didn't know you. Now, how is he not going to throw you out? I mean, it's a question in a sense of whether or not you're throwing yourself out. It's not that he didn't offer you the world when he handed you his scroll. You didn't do anything with it. If we're going on a long car trip and we take three cars, three families, and I offer you enough gas for the trip and I offer you enough money to buy supplies and you decide to leave the gas behind and to leave the money behind, and you run out of fuel in the first leg of the trip, and then you're stuck in the middle of the desert and you die, you cannot blame me. You will be cast out 
as a worthless slave in outer darkness because you were a fool. I gave you everything and more would have been added to you, but you just didn't take it seriously. You didn't do anything with what I gave you. It's as simple as that. One plus one can't equal anything but two unless you have something wrong psychologically. And that's how people sound to me when they start to say, well, a merciful God wouldn't cast him out. Yes, that's why you're all screwed up. Because you allow this weird sentiment to creep into your lives. And then you say, well, I'm going to allow one plus one to equal three. And thus begins the small lie that becomes the bigger lie that becomes the bigger lie that becomes the delusion in your life. And suddenly you have real problems. And then you watch the evening news. And what does the neighbor say? They were such a nice family. I don't know how it happened. Friends, wake up. We all know how it happened. It's just like the people that say about Nazi Germany, I don't know how it happened. I mean, what do you mean you don't know how it happened? Look around you. Wake up. It's obvious how it happened. If you haven't figured out from listening to Scripture what the human being is, go back to watching PBS and learning about the wonders of humanity and then lullaby yourself to sleep. Come on. There is only one who is holy, as we say in the liturgy, one who is the Lord, Jesus Christ. Everybody else is unimpressive and unexceptional and in need of mercy and judgment, which are two sides of the same coin in Scripture. This Kyrios has a business to run. He's got a slave who he's feeding and housing and giving space to and is only costing him. He gets no benefit from him. He's not worth anything because he doesn't do anything except blame his Kyrios for being too mean. So this Kyrios is in a tough situation. What do you do when you're trying to run a business and you've got a report who doesn't do anything except to say, well, I didn't start on that yet because I know you're really tough. We've been paying you for a week. Yeah, but I know you're really tough. I mean, a manager's only got one choice if they're going to be responsible to the company. You've got to fire them. Like, that's it. But the problem with a slave is you can't fire a slave. You own them. You're going to sell them, sell them at the marketplace? Maybe. But it might not be worth it. You got to do something with a servant. You got to get rid of the slave for the sake of the household. This kind of foolishness is wickedness because it is excuses for why it's okay not to act, not to work, not to do one's duty. This guy is taking from the community and not giving to the community. He's corrupting the community. He's not helping the community. His selfishness cannot stand because his selfishness is based on a rejection of wisdom, not ignorance, a rejection of it. What do you do in a family where someone continuously mistreats people in the family? 
when someone continuously is disrespectful to the other people in the family, are you going to keep inviting them to Christmas and Thanksgiving? No, you're going to ruin every Christmas and Thanksgiving by inviting them. Everyone has to suffer because of this one person and their recalcitrance, unwilling to love and respect and invest their energy into doing the right thing and to doing the work that the family needs, but instead cares most about how they feel and how safe they feel and whether someone else makes them feel bad without caring at all about what they are rendering back to the Kyrios. What are you giving back to the Kyrios? Did the Kyrios make a good investment? Did the Kyrios make a good investment? Now, this word that's used here, the word that's used here for unprofitable, achrion, is the same one that's used in Luke 17 when he says to them, at the end of the day, once you've done your work, tell the master that you are the achrion because you only did what you were told to do. In Luke, every servant is achrion. But the Kyrios may say, hey, you did a good job. I trust you in spite of your being achrion. But this achrion, unfortunately, made the case for himself about how Ahrion he is. And the Lord had no choice but to cast out that servant. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.